Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Fred Zaspel to the podcast. Dr. Zaspel serves as the pastor of Reformed Baptist Church in Pennsylvania and as an adjunct professor of theology at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's an accomplished author, having published many works, including two books on B.B. Warfield, The Theology of B.B. Warfield and Warfield on the Christian Life. Dr. Zaspel, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Thanks so much. Glad to be with you. Yeah, look, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, first of all, to be able to get to know you a touch uh, in the context of it, but but also because of your work on B.B. Warfield and one of the heroes of the faith for many of us and have been looking forward to taking a deeper dive into his life in conversation today. And uh, knowing that our listeners who are primarily local church ministers and seminary students and the like uh, will be enriched by it. So thank you for joining me today. And on the front end of the conversation, I guess, give us a little bit of an update on, on yourself and, and your life and ministry and uh, just enable our listeners to, f- to familiarize themselves with you. Oh, I have a very, uh, <laughs> I'm afraid to call it boring life, but it's a very busy life, very routine. I have a pastor at Reformed Baptist Church, as you mentioned, in Franconia, Pennsylvania. We have a wonderful congregation, a happy, happy congregation. They love each other. They love the Word of God. It's a pleasure to be with them. I, uh, I'm a, I, my wife and I have one remaining child, and we, and uh, he's grown. We have three grandchildren with them. We love to be with them. I'm also busy at uh, books at a glance. I, I laugh about it sometimes. I'm 64 years old, just turned 64, and I'm as busy as I've ever been in my life. <laughs> I've got church work and books at a glance work that requires a bit of attention and uh, writing projects and things like that as well. But. Now, many of our listeners are at least loosely familiar with books at a glance. Uh, give us a word about that. How did it originate, and uh, what, for those who don't subscribe to it, what they could benefit by subscribing to it? Yeah, we, it, books at a glance is is modeled after the um, business reviews that they have often in, in the business world, um, where you'll get a, a review each week or something, a, a summary of important books in the business world, whether it's marketing or whatever. And I thought, well, nobody does that for uh, biblical studies. And so what we do, what we major on is uh, book summaries. And we give a couple of book summaries every week so that in seven to 10 pages, you can get the gist of what important books and new books are all about, which I think is just a marvelous service. I use it myself now all the time in my own study. I'll go to the website and research the topic that I'm to preach on or whatever, and it's marvelously uh, productive that way. And then you can streamline to the books that you want to buy and dive into more deeply yourself. But we do book summaries. Oh, that's the main thing. We also have book reviews, author interviews, uh, book notices, things like that. And I think it's a, a very helpful service. Well, I've enjoyed it over the years and uh, subscribed for many years. So thank you for your work in that regard. Great. Thank you. Well, today we're talking about the life and ministry of B.B. Warfield. And uh, I have been to his burial site there at Princeton and uh, mm-hmm. appreciated his work over the years. And so, again, it's just a delight to talk about his life and ministry today. So I guess maybe we could begin the conversation by you framing up the broad narrative of his life and ministry, kind of the broad contours of it. Yeah, Warfield was, um, well, his life is 1851 to 1921, 70 years. He um, was born in the context of, uh, uh, well, it's, it's 
pre-Civil War. It's, uh, he has family himself that is divided over that. But his, uh, his academic work began at, uh, at home. He was homeschooled in the old tradition where he learned very well and learned Greek. One of the funny things is he didn't like the study of Greek and protested it when he was a kid learning it. He was tutored at home, but his dad overruled that and said, you'll learn it anyway, which is really a, a ironic for a man who was destined to become one of the leading Greek scholars of the age. But he went to Princeton um, College in 1868, studied there very well, went off to Europe, uh, studied more in the sciences and things, but wrote home then and uh, said that he felt that he was called to go into the ministry. And so he returned home, went back to Princeton, this time to the seminary there, and studied there under Charles Hodge and some of the others that were there at the time, and uh, graduated from there in uh, 1873. He was uh, immediately went into ministry. Well, first off, he went off to uh, Europe to study again, and he studied under uh, some of the big names of the age, like uh, Delich and um, people like that. But he became thoroughly acquainted with all of the critical tools of the day, which became very important for the his uh, later ministry, particularly in his uh, polemical work. Uh, but he came back and he was involved in ministry at a couple of different churches, one in Dayton, one in Baltimore. Um, the Western Seminary in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, uh, wrote to him and asked him to become, take the, I think it was the chair, but anyway, professor of Old Testament at uh, Western Seminary. But now his Interest had turned to New Testament, so he turned that down. And um, sometime later then, they contacted him again and offered him the chair of New Testament. He took that and was there for a, a few years. He went there in 1878, and already by 1880, uh, Warfield was becoming an international name recognized for his unusual learning and his abilities. He wrote a few articles in those years that um, immediately got him international notice. Um, one of them was the article that he co-authored with A.A. Uh, a. Hodge on inspiration that became very famous, but some others on his own, too, that uh, he where he would take on critical scholars uh, in New Testament studies and made some real advances. Then when A.A. A. Hodge died, they wrote to him, Casper Wister Hodge wrote to uh, Warfield and asked him if he would take his place, and through some correspondence and back and forth, finally, he did take that spot, and there he became not professor of New Testament, but professor of theology. And uh, that's where his career was then from 1881 until his death in 1921. And he became uh, just a great, great stalwart of the faith there and a force to be reckoned with in biblical studies and in theology, uh, particularly in the fact that this was the heyday of the old liberalism. And he was recognized as the one to contend with if you're going to advance critical theories. And so he was just a, a, a giant there in that regard. So then, remind me, he when he went to Princeton, he filled the Charles Hodge chair that A.A. That, that a. A. Hodge, Charles Hodge's son, had been in, correct? Yeah, that's right. A. a. Hodge had died uh, suddenly and, and actually rather early. And when uh, Casper Wister Hodge, that's another son of Charles Hodge, who actually was, he was New Testament scholar, and he was actually something of a mentor to Warfield during Warfield's student days there at the seminary. And when he wrote to Warfield about coming and taking uh, A.A. Hodge's chair, um, 
he told him very frankly, I've seen the correspondence that uh, he said, you actually are the only one we are considering for this post. We hope you will consider it prayerfully and all of that. And they, they finally persuaded him to come. An interesting uh, sidelight there is that uh, when Casper's whisper, Wister Hodge's uh, sister heard that Warfield, Phoebe Warfield was coming to take the place of A.A. Hodge, she said, well, who better to follow A.A. than B.B.? <laughs> well, there you have it. We, in our Spurgeon Library here, we have a, a letter on display and the book uh, that A.A. Hodge sent to Spurgeon, and uh, it's a copy of A.A. Hodge's Outlines of Theology. Uh, he sent yeah. to Spurgeon with the letter to Spurgeon indicated how much his father, Charles, appreciated Spurgeon's ministry. And so that's interesting. A, an interesting aside here. So listen, as for you and your interest in Warfield, what, what prompted that? What, what has drawn you to, to make Warfield such a central Well, it was a wonderful study? providence, actually. When I was in undergraduate work, this is way back, this is in the late 70s, uh, I took a job at a Christian bookstore in town, and there I quickly became acquainted with all of the books of the day. And we didn't have the plethora of works that we have uh, today, but but there I became acquainted with the, the authors, the theologians, who was good, who was not as valuable, and why, and all of that. And it was in that context I came across the works of B.B. Warfield. First, it was his two volumes, uh, selected shorter writings, and then some of his books of sermons, Faith and Life was particularly one that I got. And um, so I, I started dabbling in Warfield. He was relatively new to me at that point. I'd known his name, but that was a little more. And uh, as I read him, I just became enthralled by it. I thought, here's a, a model theologian. He does exegesis, and he does it expertly. And he's a theologian of, of amazing grasp. His, his grasp is as deep as it is wide. Um, I got the rest of his works that I could find, the five volumes from uh, PNR that they were publishing at the time. It wasn't until later that I got the 10 volumes. But the more I read of him, the more I was impressed that, okay, on several levels, one, here's a guy who, who has an amazing grasp of the contemporary scene, the issues in theology that are important, how to answer those issues. He could enter the fray at any point, and he would own the discussion, whether it was Old Testament studies, New Testament studies, theology, church history, philosophy, however it was, he would he would own the discussion. But at the same time, it was not just his um, his massive learning, which is just staggering at times. Sometimes I would read him and just shake my head, and how does a guy know so much? Um, but that's how he impressed me. But it was not just his learning. It was his fervent heart for Christ and a devotion for him that just pulsed through it. Um, and I just, I fell in love with it. I thought, here's a guy who, who really has it all together. He's a model scholar and he's a model Christian. And he has a, a heart for Christ that, that beats through it all. And I remember at one point reading, it was a Yale uh, church historian who started this rumor about Warfield that that his, his work was dry and lifeless, and he was a, an ivory tower theologian and, and all of that. And, and I thought either one of two things, either he hasn't read Warfield, or he, his remarks say more about him than it does Warfield. Nobody can read Warfield and think this is dry and lifeless. I, there might be a given article here and there that is technical that he might have seen, but anybody who reads very widely at all in Warfield has to see that here's a man whose heart beats 
hot for Christ. He has an, a heart of absolute dependence upon the grace of God as it's been revealed in Christ. His whole heart and center was, was uh, Christ and his redeeming work. And that just pulses through everything. And that, that spirit of devotion to Christ informing his scholarship is what attracted to me at the beginning. So Warfield's given us to the inspiration of Scripture and uh, defending the authenticity and truthfulness of Scripture. Of course, that's a part of the context of his times. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's a part of his, his training uh, as a New Testament scholar. But, but what else drew him to devote so much attention to you know, the doctrine of Scripture? Well, it was itself? the issue of the day. With the rise of liberalism and uh, its assaults on the reliability of Scripture and all of its various dimensions— uh, the so-called historical studies, the studies of the historical Jesus, and all of that that came with it, the nature, the character, the origin of Scripture became the leading issue of the day. And Warfield, being who he was, um, stood up to the issue, and because it was the issue of the day, he spoke to it. And he spoke to it like no one else had before, and really as no one else since has. It's been remarked that any discussion of the doctrine of inspiration in the last hundred years is just a footnote to Warfield. And I think that's broadly true. I'm not to say that there's not been any other contribution, but the reading that I've done on on, uh, the doctrine of inspiration and related issues, there's little that is done today that you haven't seen already in Warfield in the hundreds and hundreds of pages that he wrote on the issue, not only defining the doctrine biblically, but then expounding and then answering the critics and their various points of, of, of attack and whatnot. Uh, it was the issue of the day, and he, like no one else, stood up to, uh, to answer them. Take us more deeply into Warfield's spirituality, Warfield's givenness to Christ. What do we know about him in that regard? Warfield actually had a... Um, an appreciation, I'll have to explain this because it, it, it may shock some, but he had an appreciation for Schleiermacher. He was no Schleiermacherian. He, he didn't appreciate the, the liberal theologian and all of that. But what he did appreciate about it was this emphasis on this feeling of dependence. Now, with Schleiermacher, that was defined very differently uh, from Warfield. But with Warfield, that's the essence of Christianity. That's the essence of Calvinism, a sense of dependence upon God in all that he has done for us. And that sense of dependence upon God marks Warfield throughout, and he loves throughout his works to emphasize, for example, the supernaturalism of Christianity. Uh, We are Uh, people who believe in a supernatural origin of the scriptures. It comes to us from God himself. We believe in a supernatural redeemer, a supernatural redemption. We believe in a a supernatural experience of salvation where each individual Christian is himself a, a walking miracle. This is the grace of God at work in us. And he loved in his uh, works, not just to talk about Christ, but to do it in Tones that were just adoring. Uh, he would speak of Christ as our uh, a great Redeemer, as our uh, adoring Savior. Um, phrases like that that were used that reflect throughout a heart of of passion for Christ that uh, tried to gain a real appreciation of the grace of God in Christ. I, I like to tell people, kind of jokingly, but to make the point that Warfield 
was gospel-centered long before Carson and Keller made it cool. He, he, he understood what it was to be a Christian recognizing the work of Christ for us in the greatness of that work and what it means to us as individuals. And that was the center of gravity for Warfield. He's noted for his work on inspiration because that was the issue of the day. But I think most people are probably surprised to hear that he actually produced maybe even a little bit more work on the person and work of Christ than he did on inspiration. He loved to expound this, and I think that was his own center of gravity, to see the person and work of Christ and how it plays out in the Christian life. So if you could go from Warfield to today's pastors and encourage them to pick up on a characteristic or two from Warfield's life, what would that be? Yeah, it would have to be more than one. Uh, he's, he's a man who is marked by, of course, enormous scholarship. And we all can't be scholars like Warfield. Few of us are. I, I only know a handful of men who are in that kind of a league that are as broadly and deeply learned as Warfield. The rest of us mere mortals just can't be like that. But it does serve as, it should serve as a model of pursuing scholarship uh, throughout our ministry. And I think pastors would, would do well if we would learn better that our education has not ended when we leave seminary, but it's just begun that we have the tools that we need to pursue. Now, Warfield had an advantage that he didn't have the daily pressures of pastoral ministry and all of that. But we should learn from it the need as pastors in order to address issues of the day and in order to expound the word faithfully to continue our education as we are able to read widely and to learn deeply so it informs our ministry of the word with people and even on our personal uh, dealings with them. So that's one, I think, just the, the matter of being a, a learned preacher of the word. With that also, as I've already mentioned, his heart of devotion to Christ that drove uh, his, his scholarship. In all of his polemics that he's famous for, he, um, he did it not as a, so much as a professional theologian, but as a Christian, as a man whose heart was devoted to Christ, and he saw this as his ministry to serve Christ. And uh, that heart of devotion comes through sometimes even in his most polemic works, in articles that he would write even to the uh, uh, critical scholars, even publishing in the critical journals, entering their territory. You, you, this passion for Christ beats out of it all. And I think that is something that pastors would do well to learn, to have not just a well-learned ministry, but a, a, a a preaching that is marked by a certain kind of piety, uh, a heart of devotion to Christ and appreciation for what we have in him. In that respect, Warfield models the twin ideals of old Princeton, that they would be men of learning and men of deep piety. He is both, and he exemplifies that well. Also in all, in all of that, I think it's important to note that I think one of the things that made Warfield so effective was not just his learning generally, but his exegetical precision. He was, first of all, an exegete. 
He knew how to take the text of Scripture and show you where the argument turns. And always he's pointing back to the text of Scripture to see what it demands. So he had an exegetical precision. Uh, I've mentioned to pastors many times that we have enough, for example, I'm, everybody knows I'm, I'm Calvinistic. We have enough theological Calvinists. We need exegetical Calvinists. And we, we need to ground our theology in the text of Scripture well, not just in theologizing. And Warfield's a wonderful model at that. But not only did he have the exegetical precision, but then he had the theological precision as well, where he could state the matters and state the doctrines in way that were ways that were clear and understandable, what got to the heart of the matter. He could always go to the jugular of an argument and so on. Um, but those are the kinds of things that I think that make him a model for pastors, his learning, his piety, his passion for Christ, his exegetical precision, his theological precision, and so on. Well, Dr. Zaspel, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for joining me today on Preaching and Preachers. And I do want to commend uh, your books, especially the one I have in my hand here out by Crossway Publishers, entitled Warfield on the Christian Life, Living in Light of the Gospel. Thanks a lot. Good to be with you. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.